0: You're about to listen to a special full edition of the Grant Williams podcast featuring my special guest and good friend Luke Gromman of Forest for the Trees, LLC. The response to this conversation from my subscribers was so powerful and the topics covered so important that I'm going to release this in full and I would welcome you all to give it a listen. Given the events in Ukraine these past two weeks, you don't want to miss Luke's take on what the response by the West heralds for the global monetary system and how sanctions have likely sped up the end of the post-Bretton Woods era. There really are so many pieces to this puzzle and Luke has been assembling them more precisely than just about anybody I know for a decade. So this seemed to me like the perfect time to get a better understanding of how things might unfold from here. And what Luke had to say was riveting. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The Endgame, The Super Terrific Happy Hour, The Narrative Game and the brand new series This Week in Doom featuring my co-host Doomberg is available to Copper and Silver tier subscribers at my website grant-williams.com copper tier subscribers get access to all the podcasts while members of the silver tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter things that make you go hmm so if you enjoy what you hear in this show and you want more high quality content like it please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today and with that please enjoy my conversation with luke Groman. Well, Luke, my friend, welcome! So good to see you, and so good to get a chance to talk to you again. It's been a while.
1: It has been. Thanks for having me back on, Grant. It's it's good to catch up.
0: Oh, look, you know this is uh, given what's going on in the world this week, there is there is nobody I'd rather talk to about this than you, and and that, and the reasons for that go back some years. You know, when 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 I first became aware of your work, which would be maybe seven or eight years ago now. And I've, I've talked about that story before. It's such a remarkable set of coincidences. But the, the kind of thesis that you laid out then spoke to me in a profound way. And um, you and I have been in touch since then, and, and we've kind of watched this thing become closer and closer to the headlines, become more and more apparent to anyone that's kind of willing to see it. And so I think what I'd love to do, because it feels like now is the time when people really need to understand this. So rather than jump straight and talk about what's happening now, what I'd love to do is, is take people back to the very beginning of this picture that you put together so beautifully and just get you in your own words to kind of lay out the 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 pathway that it took you on, and also the pictures that you put together, create the picture, the, the whole mosaic, and then we'll talk about um, the moves this week, which I think are pivotal in 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 what you've been talking about for so long now. So let me let me hand that over to you and walk us through it. Take all the time you want, and let's um, let's do it properly.
1: Yes, I think probably the the best place to start is I think you have to go back. Uh, and we'll do this quickly because I know it's a long time back. I don't want to glaze people's eyes over. But if you go back, oh look, I,
0: listen, I, I think it's important. So don't, don't, don't shy away from it. If people can always fast forward if they've heard it, you and I talking about this before and they get bored. They can just roll their eyes and fast forward. But I, I just think <laughs> it, it, you know, so few, I think not enough people are aware of this whole set of dominoes, and so I think it's important that you give them, give them the full Luke Groman.
1: Yeah, I think it's important because if once you see the context, like you said, you you really can't unsee it. You start to really see the world through through a new lens or uh, a new old lens maybe is the best way to describe it. So at the end of World War II, there was a monetary conference to basically set out what was going to be the the new monetary system in the aftermath of the war. There were two options. There was the U.S. option and there was the uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes option, and the U.S. option was uh, the dollar is the center of the universe? Uh, all other currencies are tied to dollar at various fixed rates or pseudo fixed rates, and in very narrow bands. And then the dollar is pegged to gold at thirty five dollars per ounce. And Keynes's uh, proposal was something called the Bancor, B A N C O R, and it was basically a basket of commodities uh, designed in a to be a neutral reserve asset. And I think that's a very important term. We're going to come back to that later. It was a neutral reserve asset that was de- designed to settle trade in between nations. Uh, and so, if you were a uh, a creditor nation, uh, you sold more than you bought. You ended up with surpluses. Uh, you would end up uh, with with uh, uh, bancor. You would end up with uh, the ability to, uh, to you'd have the bancor. If you were a deficit nation, you would end up buying more than you sold. To settle that trade, you would have to sell your currency and buy uh, uh, buy bancor. Right, so you're selling your currency uh, to buy bancor. Your currency is going to weaken against the creditor nations, and so it would become a self-regulating trade system where the bankor is a neutral settlement asset that floats in in all the currencies, prevents major imbalances, um, and at any rate, uh, be a much more balanced, less crisis-proof, less crisis-prone. Excuse me, not crisis-proof, but less crisis-prone system. Uh, The Americans had all the guns, all the men, all the factories, all the gold, all the oil. And so in short, they went with the American uh, proposal. Uh, Fast forward to uh, by by the mid to late 50s, the Europeans and the Japanese were getting back on their feet. They were by nature very productive. They were starting to run surpluses uh, and they were starting to drain America's gold. Uh, And so at the end of World War II, America had 21,000 tons of gold pegged at $35 an ounce by 1971. Americans are down to eight thousand tons and draining fast. Um, and uh, the in nineteen seventy one, uh, given the choice uh, per Article Four, I think it was of the IMF at the time. There could the Americans could have devalued the dollar against gold. They could have said, all right, we're not going to peg it at 35. And as a practical matter, they did go from 35 to 42 Mm -hmm. in the intervening time. So there was a modest devaluation. Uh, There were proposals at the time to take the dollar from 35 to 150 against gold, uh, I believe by uh, members of the BIS. Uh, But in the end, uh, Nixon and the US administration decided to just close the gold window altogether, say the dollar is no longer good for gold. And that threw the system into a period of chaos for a couple of years. And then uh, late 73, uh, there was, uh, I believe it was the Yom Kippur War, a brief war. Um, three months later, oil was up 400%. Uh, there's a famous story told by Sheikh Yamani, the former oil minister of Saudi Arabia, who said that uh, when uh, somebody asked him, uh, he, he says with 100% certainty that Henry Kissinger wanted the price of oil significantly higher. Uh, and told people that's so when 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 uh, the Shah of Iran asked uh, Sheikh Yamani, why why am I raising oil four hundred percent? and and Sheikh Yamani told the Shah of Iran, go, I don't know, go talk to Henry Kissinger. So uh, and you can find all this, this is all in the public domain. So uh, at any rate, what happened here was one way or another, the oil market was made big enough uh, to serve as a reserve asset, a de facto reserve asset. For the dollar and the petrodollar system was born. Uh, Basically, uh, the US reached an agreement where uh, Saudi Arabia, in particular, biggest marginal swing producer, would only take dollars for their oil as a practical matter. That meant all of OPEC would go along. And so, uh, dollars only priced in oil. And so, if you needed oil, the Europeans, the Japanese, uh, in particular, with a big creditor nation, creditor regions that were short energy, uh, you had to have dollars, and so you basically ended up with a de facto oil backing of the dollar. Now, that doesn't mean the Americans could simply print willy nilly um, with this oil backing. What you can see looking back at the at at the relationships of the time is that the U.S. went from being pegged to gold. To being pseudo pegged to oil is what I've called it, and 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 it's a term that uh, Eric Jansen um, re- coined uh, at iTulip, which is it, the dollar went from being as good as gold um, to being as good as gold for oil, and basically, if you look, what that means is if you look back from 1973 through about 2005. Uh, there was about a, uh, I guess not 73, you did have the run up 73. So after the run up, right, early 74, the punchline is that for almost 30 years, oil traded between roughly $12 to $15 a barrel and about $30 a barrel. And when oil got to 30, the Americans were raising rates and tightening policy. And when oil got down to the low end of that range, the Americans were loosening policy uh, via Fed funds, uh, and so there was basically this the dollar was kept in a range. Your, your treasury bonds, if you held treasury bonds as a reserve asset, you were given a degree of comfort by over those 30 years that they would buy you somewhere uh, a pretty consistent amount of oil for 30 years, uh, which is very different than what we've seen in the last 15 years. So dollar goes from being pegged to gold to being pseudo pegged to oil. 2005 we reach a point where between uh, the rise of China, uh and the uh, geological realities that were beginning to hit in um uh, in 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 global oil fields um the, in 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 short peak cheap oil you were you were starting to see a number of the world's great oil fields um start to reach peak levels and start to roll over and Matt Simmons did a lot of great work with that in his book Twilight in the Desert around that time uh the punchline is is oil got to 30 and Kept going. It went to fifty. So now you're all of a sudden the dollar is is starting to fall out of a thirty year range against oil, and then uh, that happened at a very inopportune time because right as the as 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 these external factors, China and geology, are forcing the dollar to break down against a thirty year range uh, in terms of oil, uh, all of a sudden um, the subprime crisis starts breaking out. And so instead of the Fed tightening into oil prices breaking beyond 30, beyond 40, beyond 50, the Fed was forced to make a choice. Either we sacrifice the domestic economy, which is we need to hike rates a lot, get oil back to that range to keep the dollar as good as gold for oil, or we need to address the domestic economy and lower rates and try to prevent our banks from blowing up with the subprime stuff. And of course, we all know what, what the US did. They, they ultimately tried to save the banks. You know, It's interesting if you look at, for example, oil was, I believe, 70, 80 bucks at the end of 07 when the subprime crisis really started to get intense. And the Fed started cutting rates in October of, I think it was October of 07. At any rate, oil from October 07 to summer of 08 went from 70, 80 bucks to 150 bucks in a big hurry. So the dollar went into absolute free fall against oil. Um, and so I think our view is that basically you were watching this 30 year, br- breakdown of this 30 year, keeping the dollar as good as gold for oil break down in the same way that the the dollar pegged o- uh, gold, excuse me, broke down in the late sixties and early seventies. And so I think this was a surprise to many, uh, nations in the world. I think ultimately they had been aggregating FX reserves, dollar reserves, treasuries, um, having seen 30 years of the US keeping the dollar as good as gold for oil, including what Volcker did in seventy-nine eighty, where he was willing to take rates to 15% uh, to basically stop an incipient uh, high inflation or hyperinflation of the dollar. Volcker basically, a uh, push came to shove, and Volcker had faced, faced the same decision that Bernanke later would in 08. And that decision was, do I manage the dollar for the good of the world as a reserve currency, or do I manage the dollar for the good of America which and, and let it keep inflating? And Volcker managed the dollar for the good of the world. He, he put the US economy into severe austerity, severe recession, in fact, two severe recessions, took rates, stomped out inflation. We sort of know how that, all that went. And I think much of the world, particularly uh, China, Russia, Europe, Uh, thought that when push came to shove, the Americans would do the same thing again if another situation like that arose. And instead, in 2008, the Americans said, eh, forget it, we're a unipolar power, doesn't matter, it's different this time, however you wanna say it, we're printing the money. And so in the aftermath of the 08, 09 crisis, I think in the the short run, everybody was just one like, hey, let's just get things settled down, the system is frighteningly close to collapse. In the aftermath of that, and not very long after, uh, the bank, uh, the, the PBOC, uh, People's Bank of China, the head of it, uh, uh, Zhao, wrote a three-page white paper at the BIS in March of '09. literally, I believe, six trading days after the US did what I call Big QE, which is where they went from just buying mortgage backs to printing a trillion dollars to buy treasury bonds as well. And it was not very subtly titled. It was it was you know the need to reform the international currency system or something like that. And the BIS uh, is is essentially the central banker's central bank. And so that there began to be, I think, was was sort of the first recognition or the first visible recognition uh, to uh, a a non insider that there was a high degree of dissatisfaction with uh, with how the U.S. had not managed the dollar to be as good as gold for oil anymore. Now for China. They're often said this is just, I think I think there's a lot of thought that they were just being belligerent, but this is just about China being belligerent. There's probably some truth to that. Now, but I think it's not as appreciated that um uh, it's a matter of this, this was really a matter of national security for China. Uh China, as I think a lot of people know, is short energy, they're short food, uh, they're long dollar reserves. And so if China is long dollar reserves and uh short energy and the Americans have just committed to showing that they are not going to keep those dollar reserves as good as gold for oil, then China knows they're gonna run out of reserves uh, at some point in the future. And in fact, uh, Kyle Bass talked about this on uh, on an interview, uh, I believe on CNBC, uh, if not on, on, on several podcasts, where he said, listen, the Chinese have only so much oil, or only so much in dollar reserves, excuse me, they need more and more oil to grow their economy, um, and more and more dollars, because the price of oil is rising. And China's gonna run out of dollars. And when they do, they're gonna have a late 90s currency crisis and the Yuan's gonna, gonna fall. And that was the case of shorting the Yuan and, uh, that a number of people had. And I think the PBOC was well aware of this as early as, as 2009. And that's why they actually explicitly said, we wanna change the system. And not only did they say that, but they said, given how poorly this system has reacted um, or has, has, has how many crises the, this system has had. The 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 Keynes system, the Keynes Bank or the PBOC specifically cited it uh, was uh, was cited by the People's Bank of China as a better system, a system with a neutral reserve asset. There was that term again. Um, so we saw that. We saw um, uh, rumblings by a very uh, a senior reporter uh, wrote an article, a guy named Robert Fisk in the uh, UK Independent, saying that there were credible reports that. Much of Eurasia, the Middle East, and Asia were working on trying to move away from uh, dollar, uh, strictly dollar settlement of oil uh, into multi-currency uh, oil pricing with with a gold settlement aspect to it. And again, I think it's critical to understand if you're if you're China, you look at this going forward and said, okay, well the Americans just printed three trillion dollars to get out of this crisis. We didn't think they'd print any. And if we look ahead 10 years, not even 10 years, we look ahead five years, we know the American baby boomers are going to start are going start uh, retiring. And we know the Dallas Fed chairman, Richard Fisher, said in May of 08 that the present value of those obligations were $90 trillion already then. So the Americans are going to print $90 trillion if they have to. And when they do that, the price of oil is going to go through the roof, and we don't have nearly enough. We're going to run out of our reserves, and then we're going to have this currency crisis. And- Social unrest and running out of oil and food is a very big uh, political hot wire in China. They're not going to let that happen. So as a matter of national security, they began moving away or moving the system toward a neutral reserve asset. Um, There have been other hints since. You saw uh, the head of the World Bank, who's a former Goldman guy at the time, former Treasury official Robert Zellick in 2010, came out and said, we need to move to a system where the yuan is more convertible. It'll also include the dollar, the yuan, or excuse me, the yen, the euro, and the pound. And we should probably use gold as a reference point for both inflation and relative values. And it was gold, again, as a neutral reserve asset. Uh, the IMF talked about it in 2011, saying, well, maybe we should use oil, we should price oil and gold in SDRs. And that would be the same type of thing as, a, as an SDR, a neutral reserve asset, uh, where imbalances would be settled. Um, you move forward to 2014, you start to see China and Russia working together, starting to sign big gas deals, big oil deals. Uh in local currency terms. uh, Late 2014, the Chinese effectively reopened the gold window um, in Shanghai with this Shanghai Gold International Board, where they, uh, if if Russia at that time was then selling a little bit of oil and gas in yuan, they could take those yuan, take it to Shanghai, exchange it for physical gold. So so they were making the yuan uh, fully convertible on a very limited basis through physical gold markets. Um, you you continue to see these types of deals in the intervening years. You fast forward to 2018. China opens the yuan oil contract, and actually, if you look at the flows of that, there too it is the it makes the yuan fully convertible uh, through the oil market. If you can take your dollars, you exchange them uh, for yuan, you buy oil. Uh, you make money, you can take your profits out, and you can select the currency in which you take the profits, is, is how it was described to me in, in the banking documents. So there again, on a limited basis, the yuan is made convertible through oil. But again, it's, it's a national security issue. China needs to be able to print yuan for oil. Europeans have the same issue. Uh, the Europeans have long had the same issue. They need to print euro for oil. And um, 2018, Jean Claude Juncker says it's absurd that we pay, you know, two percent of our energy bill in euro and ninety eight percent in dollars. It's three hundred billion euro a year. The Europeans have the same problem. Um, they need to be able to print euro for energy. Um, and in fact, I'm going to jump backward a little bit here. It's it's not well understood. But if you look at the construction of the euro in late 19 or excuse me in 1999. Um, the when they launched the euro, they put 15% of Eurozone reserves into gold, marked to market on a quarterly basis. And at the time, people were scratching their head. And this is a huge clue that most people just gloss over, which is if they loved the dollar system so much, why did they why did they put 15% of reserves into gold, mark to market quarterly, um, when they could have just put it in treasury bonds? And the answer is they were very likely, uh, in my opinion, uh, trying to make the euro attractive to energy exporters. Basically, by putting gold in their mark-to-market quarterly, what they were saying is the euro is our currency, but it's our problem too, as opposed to the dollar where it's our currency and it's your problem, which is to say, if the Europeans print a bunch of money for the stall of stuff they've printed money ever since, uh, the price of gold is going to go up and it will act as ballast um, uh it will act as ballast to support the euro and it will also give comfort to uh energy creditors that might be holding euro balances that the price of gold is going to be allowed to rise um and and be money good in terms of uh european goods over time you know keeping the eurozone goods as good as gold for or uh, keeping gold as as good as euro goods um So you've seen across Eurasia, these nods to this neutral reserve asset, whether it's Europe uh, at the launch of the euro, whether it's China, uh, whether it's Russia, when you go to 2013, 2014, they start in 2010, really start buying lots and lots of gold. Uh, 2014, 2013, really, actually before the sanctions around the first Ukraine episode, they start dumping treasuries. By 2018, the Russians are largely out of treasuries. Um, and, and they diversify their reserves. The Russians now, if you look at the FX reserves right prior to this crisis, they had 13% in yuan. They had uh, 20, I think, 5 6% in euro. They had a little bit in dollars, and they had like 22% in gold. And so you can see the shape of this system moving toward this Keynes-Bancor proposal from 80 years ago. That the Chinese advocated for in 09, that the Europeans really advocated for as far back as the 70s, settling oil and gold, uh, started making a nod to uh, not settling in gold, but having that neutral reserve asset component with the launch of the euro, uh, and that it brings you forward to, uh, I would say, pretty much to this present time, where um, uh, over the last uh, eight years, we have seen uh, global central banks. Uh buy about $260 billion worth of gold uh, against just roughly $60 billion, give or take, uh, on a net basis of foreign official buying of US Treasury. So foreign central banks, official accounts have bought 3x more gold in the last year, uh, last eight years than Treasury. So there's been this, this very slow but steady and recently accelerating move toward the away from this dollar system of. That, that broke in 2005 through 2008 uh, to this system that looks a lot like what was proposed by Keynes 80 years ago.
0: Mate, that's beautifully done. Uh, there were so many points I wanted to kind of jump in, but I didn't want to break your flow because I know how difficult it is when you're going through all these dates. So there's, there's so much to unpack in. Let me jump back to Volcker. Um, you made this point about how Volcker managed the dollar for the world rather than for America. And it's very interesting that he did that. And and I don't think many people think about it that way. People think about what he did as being charged with getting inflation down and being the tough guy and getting inflation down for Americans, right? We had the whole whip inflation now thing with Carter. Right. And Volcker was the kind of spearhead of that. So when you talk about it in those terms, it really does put a whole new spin on America's actions back then in the late 70s into the early 1980s versus where we are now. So 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 just talk about the dynamics that led Volcker to do that and the pressure that might have been on him ex US domestic inflation.
1: Yeah, I think the easiest way to to look at it, or the quickest way is you can go online uh, on the Fed's archives, and there is a Fed white paper called The Reforms of October 1979. And in that white paper, uh, there is a section where there was an IMF meeting in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, in October of '79. Volker flies there. He spends less than 24 hours there. Meets with key U.S. creditors, primarily European, German, French, uh, a few others. Um, the white, the Fed's own white paper says that Volker's ears were left ringing with the stern words of U.S. creditors, uh, including Otmar Eminger, uh, German. Uh, and, and to be blunt, it, it, it reads as if what the, that the Europeans in particular gave Volcker, what we used to call on the, on the sales desk, a, Hey, I'm conversation, right? Like basically you, you got to do something about this. We we've got nowhere else to go. Um, and, uh, he immediately, like I said, spent less than 24 hours in great Belgrade, Belgrade, Yugoslavia flew right back home. And immediately began putting pen to paper in terms of policy, a policy response to stamp out inflation. And so what was really said about what else we're going to do, um, is never really specified in this paper, but you can, you can get a sense of it. If you read the other historical documents from the seventies, uh, there's a, a document, um, in the archives where, uh, one of the assistant treasury secretaries, um, uh, I think Weintraub uh, was uh, telling Volcker and Kissinger that the Europeans were planning on u- revaluing gold way higher and using market value gold to settle. European uh, energy deficits with the Arab oil exporters. And there was actually some support for this in the American administration. This would have been like 74. uh, But ultimately, um, they they went on to say these are counter to our aims for the system, right? So our aims for the system, you can even see this back if you go to uh, um, uh, um, uh, Giannis Varoufakis gave a speech in 2013 where the, the former Greek finance minister where he said, look, there's there's a document. You can't find it on the internet. I have a copy. It was given to me by someone in the Americas. I'm not going to tell you who. It's very short. But Kissinger, once the U.S. began running deficits in 1970, Kissinger realized that historically when empires start running deficits, that's it. And what what uh, Varifakis says is the document specifically lays out um, – that Kissinger tasked Volcker, who was an assistant uh, on treasury undersecretary or something at the time, with figuring out a way for the U.S. to maintain its hegemonic position. Um, this was apparently Kissinger's role or Kissinger's words, um, even though we were turning into a deficit nation. And what Volcker came up with this in this document was we need to go from recycling our surpluses to recycling everybody else's surpluses. We need a way to figure out how to do that. And that was the energy link, right? So there's this, this path you can see very clear means motive opportunity of, uh-oh, we're running deficits. We need to figure out surpluses to recycle. OK, we found oil surpluses. OK, the Europeans are trying to move to gold. That's against our aims for the system. Seventy nine. Uh, by this point, inflation's running hot. The Europeans are now saying, "Hey, MFR, you gotta fix inflation." Volker comes back and basically blows up the U.S. economy. Takes rates to fifteen percent to bring inflation down to defend the dollar. Uh, what I mean, what Volker was doing is no different than what Turkey was doing a few, you know, what Russia did two weeks ago, right? Russia, right. Russia took rates to twenty percent they're defending the ruble. Uh, Volcker took rates to 15%. He was defending the dollar, and he did it successfully. Um, and and so there was very much an external component to this. Again, it's never explicitly stated out, but you put the pieces together, it's unmistakable. Uh, and it's a very important side that we very rarely hear here in, in sort of US finance.
0: But, you know, it's interesting because um, obviously, Bill Simon went to Saudi in 73 to sign that petrodollar agreement, right? So yep. one could argue that at the time this happened, 78, 79, the US actually was in a very strong position. They didn't have a euro. You didn't really have alternatives to the US dollar. Nothing. And yet when they were at arguably their strongest, they caved and did what was right for the world and, and put domestic policy last, which is unusual. Whereas now when they're arguably at their weakest with all kinds of credible alternatives to the dollar... There's a degree of hubris in this, that we are at our weakest, but we are going to put the U.S. first this time and not the world. You know, pride comes before a fall and all that. And and, and the more I look at this now, the more I realize just how dangerous a game the United States is playing by continuing to put domestic issues ahead of those of the rest of the world.
1: I think that's right. And yeah, when you get to 2008, there was this choice again. And uh hubris dogma i mean the fact that you know the end of history happened in 1990 so you know we don't need to make her you know deficits don't matter reagan proved deficits don't matter right i mean that's that's something that uh, cheney allegedly said just four years before listen reagan proved right. deficits don't matter uh so uh the debt doesn't matter um uh, and at that point you know we're, we're in 2001 the u.s government ran a surplus so we were you know by 2008 we were still as as weak as we as we were in that moment when you look at the balance sheet of the United States both the on balance sheet right the debt i think that the GDP was 60% very robust economy uh good demographics the boomers really hadn't started retiring yet so the off balance sheet stuff was still cash flow positive you know in terms of entitlements we were in pretty good shape and you had a group of leaders um That had been taught by, you know, the Mexican crisis, long term capital crisis, Asian crisis, dot com crisis, um, you know, 9-11 crisis, 2003 Iraq invasion. There's no cost to this stuff. Just print the money, man. Just print the money. And and so they did. And so you can understand why they did it. Um, Now, critically, you know, Hank Paulson later on said that the Russians approached the Chinese in summer of 08 and said, hey, we've got them. Let's start dumping Fannie Freddie bonds and they'll start dumping agencies and really force them to bail it out, really force um, this bailout, force them to print money, force them to devalue the dollar. Uh, And so I think that's an important foreshadowing for what I think we're going to talk about a little bit here for sort of a grand strategy of what might be at work today.
0: Yeah, and we we'll definitely come on to that but before we get there I just want to I just want to run a parallel path from 2000 onwards when when China entered the WTO and became a rapidly rising power and 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 really demanding a much louder voice at, in in all these negotiations. So let's just talk about what's been happening with alternatives being put in place over time. And and you you've done such a fantastic job with this, you know, you, for anyone that doesn't um read your work at Forest for the Trees, you you have been picking stuff out that, as we've gone through that that opening, you know, kind of 20-minute monologue, which which you did so beautifully, you've been so good at picking out these seemingly idiosyncratic news story, headlines, articles here and there, that if you read them in isolation, really seem insignificant. But when you put them in a picture from the other side, we'll put the US aside now, let's look at the other side of this coin, and that are the other countries who are beholden to the mighty US dollar and the moves they've been trying to put in place to try and give themselves an escape route. Now you talked about Russia. You know who who have very visibly swapped treasuries for gold. They've been doing that very very clearly for a number of years now, and are yep. effectively completely out of U.S. treasuries now. Yep. So well, I've seen that being referenced. As they were doing that ahead of this Ukraine move, I, I think it's probably been going on longer than that, and the and the motives are separate. But it certainly hasn't hurt them. But let's talk about. China. Let's talk about Russia. Let's talk about those local currency deals that you talked about and bring in the Saudis, the Iranians, the Turks, and the other countries that really are clearly looking to be a part of this alliance.
1: Yeah, I think it really comes down to enlightened or self-interest, right? Uh, Maybe not enlightened, just (laughs) self-interest, raw self-interest. Whether it's enlightened or not is really irrelevant for purposes of this discussion. If you're Russia and you're only pricing your oil in dollars, you have no sovereignty. You are a subsidiary of the U.S. Fed. The U.S. Fed decides, um, you know, your job in Russia is to try to manage the oil price, right? You maximize oil price, but you're getting dollars, all right? And so what you're getting is, you know, based on U.S. economy, U.S. financial policy, fiscal policy, You're effectively a vassal of the US. And that's never rubbed the Russians the right way, particularly after uh, the late 90s. If you are Europe, Japan, China, India, I will group all of them together because they are very alike in one critical way for purposes of this discussion, which is to say they are essentially, you know, the Indians are a little tricky because they import so much gold, they run deficits sometimes, but they're essentially creditor nations they they are they run trade surpluses or current account surpluses but they are net short energy they are energy importers so they are running deficits uh with the oil exporters and so it's this dollar link so the the russians have no say over their sovereignty their uh the value of their oil and and uh the uh Creditor nations that are oil importers are constantly at risk of running uh, running into a currency crisis, right? If the Europeans need oil and run out of dollars, they're going to run out of oil, and you run out of oil, or you run out of dollars, and either the euro is going to crash against the dollar, like we saw in Southeast Asia in 97, or uh, the economy is going to crash as you run out of oil, or both. Um, same thing with China, Japan, India. Um for the Russians it's the opposite side of the same coin which is particularly once you get into the geological issues we talked about before if you remember i said you started to see the as good as gold for oil deal breakdown in 05 where oil starts rising because of china because of emerging market demand um uh, by 2013 uh, emerging markets were the majority of global gdp and oil consumption for the first time and Three hundred years in the case of GDP. Uh, so suddenly, this system—not—it just structurally doesn't work. But the geological side, in particular, is really important because if you're Russia, peak cheap oil means that you're going to sell oil today, and in a year is going to go up ten percent. And it's going to go up ten percent a year, you know, smoothing out the economic cycles forever. And so you're trading fiat dollars, putting them in treasuries. You're basically Selling your 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 oil at significantly negative real interest rates, and what's going to happen is you're going to wake up in ten years, fifteen years, and you're going to have a pile of treasuries that used to buy you a thousand barrels of oil, and they're going to end up buying you ten barrels of oil, and your people are going to starve, and you're going to be in trouble as a leader. The flip side of that of the peak cheap energy issue is holds true for that group of of creditor nations that import energy, which is the value, the real value in oil terms of their dollar reserves are going to melt away like an ice cube by 10 percent per year. So either they have to depreciate their currencies or they have to shrink their economies. Neither of these things are politically popular. And so it becomes a matter of national security uh, from a strategic standpoint for the entirety of Eurasia to move to a system where They can buy oil in something else. Now, ultimately, I think Putin would tell you, hey, I love the dollar. The dollar is a great system. The Chinese would tell you, I love the dollar. There's nothing better than the dollar. So what's the better system and the better system? The only thing better for these countries than the dollar to buy oil in is their own currency, one they can print. And so the Europeans want to print euro for oil. Chinese, you want to print yuan, so on and so forth. The issue with this is the American version of this deal that we're printing dollars for oil as we have since 73 is, and this is the downside of the deal is you got to run the deficits to supply the dollars to the world, which means you got to offshore all the manufacturing. You got to offshore all the manufacturing jobs. You got to run a bunch of deficits at the government level. You got to do all these things that are really, really good for GDP growth and and, and, and the economy in the short and medium term, and in the long run, they bankrupt you. This is just an expression of Triffin's dilemma. So the issue is the Germans have no interest in offshoring all of the manufacturing in Europe. Uh, the Chinese have no interest in doing the same. The Japanese have no interest in doing the same. So they're not going to run the deficits to supply the currency to be able to print their own currency in. OK, so what's the next best option, especially when nobody trusts each other? It's gold it's already sitting on the central bank balance sheets. It's right back to where we were for Keynes, it's right back to where we were for the Europeans in the 70s. Uh and you suddenly see the central banks from 2008 on buying gold, uh repatriating gold, getting gold back into their own borders. I mean, it's it's been this fascinating thing to me that ever since 2014, Russia's, you know, some people will say Russia is a threat to invade Europe. Well, since 2013, that Europeans have been repatriating gold back like their life depends on it, gold that they had kept in America for safety from the Russians. So how big a threat do the Europeans really see the Russians as if they're repatriating gold they kept away from Europe for safety from the Russians? So there's, I think, something bigger going on here that you can kind of, again, see that on the surface, hey, they're repatriating gold. So what? But in the context of all of this other stuff, it starts to take on, like you said, much, much greater meaning. And so I think that's really, it's a matter of national security from a strategic standpoint, because otherwise you're going to end up with your currency collapsing, your economy collapsing as you run out of dollars to buy oil due to the geology of peak cheap oil and due to the Americans who expressed very clearly, you know, wait, listen, when the boomers retire, we're just going to print the money, guys. And it's a lot of money.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a mountain of money. Great. So we've got those two parallel tracks there. And that's, I guess, brings us up to to where we are today. And the reason why what's been happening in the last couple of weeks, with regards the economic sanctions, and the, the kind of moves that have been made to ostracize Russia, and put pressure on them. as I've watched all these things unfold, I just see this game changing dramatically and and with it, people's attitudes, I suspect, in months to come. Now, what's been interesting all the way through this, what what you've talked about, and as you've outlined that, um, it's amazing how many people reflexively go back to the price of gold. Well, the the price of gold hasn't gone crazy, so you must be wrong, right? Because gold isn't $3,500 an ounce, how could any of this make any sense? And what we've been waiting for really is a catalyst when this becomes not just something you kind of quietly chip away at setting up in the background, but the actual matter of national security now becomes a race to put in place what you've been talking about. So, so let's talk about the sanctions that have been placed on Russia and why that accelerates what you've been talking about.
1: Sure. I think before we get there, we need to spend, you know, 30 seconds highlighting when you said in 08, I said the US actually was still in really good shape, right? We we had a good balance sheet, all these things. Well, in the intervening time, uh, based on policy choices, based on uh crises in the intervening time, and then based on COVID, uh, the US balance sheet went from 60% debt to GDP to 130% debt to GDP. Yeah. Uh deficits went from sort of run rate of two to three percent of GDP, they're running at 10 now. Uh, and foreign central banks stopped financing U.S. deficits to a large extent in 2014 because they, in part, because they didn't have, you know, the the deficits to finance or the, the surpluses to recycle, and in part because they were buying gold instead of treasuries. And so all of that by way of saying we came into this crisis with this situation, and I think this was ultimately what Russia understood, and I think what China understood was Uh, Because I think China, I don't think Russia does this without China's explicit backing. And there's been hints to suggest that that's actually been the case uh, in the last week or so. But I think Russia saw two things, which is unlike 2008, when they tried to force a run on the dollar uh, via dumping mortgage backs and treasuries in the heat of that crisis, I think Putin saw two things. I think he saw, number one, the peak cheap energy. And the fact that U.S. shale is peaking, which the Wall Street Journal has been harping on for a year, we've been talking about peak cheap energy, the biggest marginal oil supplier to neutralize him over the last 10 years has been shale. And shale can't really grow production much anymore uh, for a number of different geological reasons. And so I think Putin knew, number one, that if you take his energy out of the mix, the global world, the global economy cannot survive without him. It will go into a very severe recession. Which then takes into account the second part, which is the U.S. government's balance sheet isn't where it was in 08. It's sure as heck not where it was in 2000, 95, 90, 85, 80. It is now a dumpster fire. Uh, and what I mean by that is when you look at, uh, for example, one one metric I've used: true true treasury true interest expense. Right? Is is U.S. Treasury spending plus the pay-as-you-go portion of entitlements. They are that's 100 percent of of U.S. Uh, tax receipts with tax receipts at all time highs um, and 12 percent nominal GDP last year. So the point is that the U.S. fiscal situation is exceedingly weak. So weak that if the U.S. has just a modest recession, the Fed is going to have to come in. Mathematically, they're either going to have to stand aside as the U.S. misses payments on entitlements or treasuries, or both, or the Fed's going to have to come in and cover the difference. Uh, or else the system's going to come unhinged. And so I think Putin understood that if he takes his energy away, the ensuing recession will trigger a financial crisis that will force the Fed to respond with money printing. And so I think there was a very calculated move within the move, you know, the the sort of the, 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 the game we're all seeing of he wants his territory back and all those things. No, I, I'm sure that's the case. But I think, In terms of the response, he had to have known that we were going to do these things. And that then brings to the point of some of the things we've done in the last week, which have been um, nothing short of astounding to me. I mean, just absolutely astonishing, where uh, I think he expected that we would sanction, maybe throw him out of SWIFT, do what we did to the Iranians. The huge thing that just happened that I think virtually nobody understands the implications of uh, in response to this, is the US and the EU uh, 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 sanctioning Russia's central bank reserves. They basically said, your FX reserves, Russia, are no longer money good. Yeah, And that to me was, I think this is, we will look back in a few years' time and realize that was every bit as big as Nixon closing the gold window in August of 71. Uh, because if you're a central bank, you you can't store. Basically, that was the U.S. saying, take your money elsewhere. Take your money elsewhere. And people say, well, it's just for bad actors. Yeah. But who's, you know, if you look at the last 80 years, there's a the list of nations that the U.S. has not considered a bad actor at some point is exceedingly short. Yeah, The French were bad actors when they were raiding our gold in the 60s. The Israelis were bad actors when they, you know, they, it's just, it's so fickle. And so, I mean, it was, it. it it was literally one of these moments where you say the U S just told the world to buy gold. They just told the global central banks to do that system, to do the co- the, the, the bank horse system that Eurasia has been looking for for a long time. And I, and I think it's important because sort of all along in this process, I've thought some sort of systemic change like this would, would need two requirements. It would need to be uh able to be easy, an easily crafted narrative, right? So the average guy in Wall Street could say, you know, when his client says, hey, why is gold 3,000 and the world isn't ending? And it, he's like, oh, well, you know, we sanctioned Russian reserves and, uh, you know, now central banks are all buying gold and there's 12 trillion in reserves and there's only 12 trillion in, in gold ever mined. And, you know, the price is going to go to 5,000 because of that. And it's just supply demand. And That's pretty easy. And anybody can tell that story. And so it's the first time we've really had that. Mm -hmm. And then I think the second thing is maybe even more important, which is this was the American system. And as much as the U.S. position is as weak uh, as it's been in 40 years, we're still very, very powerful. And so I think if the system was going to make the final changeover, it was going to have to be the Americans to make the choice to basically do it. And ideally, if you were the American administration, you know this needs to happen. If you want to reshore, you need this to happen. The DOD has been in favor of this type of thing. You've got to to reshore the industrial base uh, for national security reasons. But if you're going to do this, you got to do it in a way so that it looks like we're doing it from a position of strength, not from a position of weakness, right? If it looks like the Russians and the Chinese have forced us into a corner and now we're doing that, you know, we're changing the dollar system, that's it, it, makes us look weak. But this, this makes us look strong. Listen to how Wall Street, listen to how everybody is saying, we showed those Russians froze those reserves. That's that'll, that'll teach them. And it's like, it's perfect. It's a perfect narrative. It checks all the boxes, and it checks the boxes for America in the wrong run. Like I said, the DOD has been in the same way that moving away from the dollar system is a matter of national security uh, for China, Russia, Eurasia, Japan. Uh, it's been a matter of national security for the U.S. Defense Department. They have been talking about this and talking about this for 10 years. You say, we're borrowing money from China to build weapons, to face down China. We're, you know, our supply, we we can't fight a war without, supply chains from China, which is a problem because you guys are telling us our big adversary is China. We need to change the dollar system. You read the defense documents on it. They talk about how excess buying of treasuries keeps the Chinese yuan undervalued relative to the dollar. Defense understands that if you want to be able to, as a matter of national security, bring manufacturing back, dollar system has to change. And so here we are. Now, who loses? Who loses? Who who was... Who is counseling Washington, D.C. not to sanction Russia out of SWIFT? Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon. There were articles on it in Bloomberg two weeks ago. So Wall Street, Fed, Treasury. Treasury will like this eventually because tax receipts eventually are going to go much higher with inflation. But in the short run, sort of this financial establishment of the last 40 years that has loved this Volcker era, they don't like this. They're not going to like this. Uh, Defense likes this. Uh, This is really good for America. But it's it's sort of once you sort of it's the crown, it's like the keystone. It's the keystone, capstone piece of this whole thing's been 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 building, building, building. And this this was the the capstone piece put in place last Saturday night or two Saturday nights ago, where they said, listen, your your dollars aren't good in FX reserves. Take them into gold and put them in your own country. We're done here.
0: Yeah, this is, and uh, this is, I think, such a crucial thing for for people to understand. You know, when you when you replay the narrative that's been put around this this kind of alternate system that's been built quietly in plain sight by the Chinese, the Russians, uh, and everybody else, it's always been framed as a way to attack the U.S. and as a way to attack the dollar. When the reality of it has been, it was in their own national security interest. Right now, we're talking about this as a national security interest, and as you laid out so perfectly. This was always a national security risk for China, for Russia, for the Saudis, for all these guys. Now we've reached this kind of bizarre point where, as you've just explained, the dollar system is potentially a national security risk for the US. And so we finally have a bizarre situation where, for the first time, it's in almost everybody's interest to find a way to end the dollar system and to transition to a new system that works better for everybody. However, it seems like the only way to do that is through conflict because it's the only way to, as you say, to disguise what's really going on here and to be able to to come up with a reason that plays well politically other than saying the system's broken and the net effect of that is your standard of living is going to go down dramatically and the price of your assets is going to get cut in half potentially so what better way to do that than to create something out of this which is a conflict between a group of nations who are all really trying to secure their own futures out of the same system it's it's bizarre
1: yeah absolutely i mean it's one of these things where you know i, I tweeted this the other day where where if you are frustrated with the us's seeming inability to do anything to putin without also you know sort of blowing off our own arm or leg or worse But you also think that the dollar system is still a net benefit to the U.S. Like those two things are contradictory, mutually exclusive positions. I mean, the the reason at its core that once China sides with Russia, there's not a lot we can do is because we have so much of our own production sitting in China. We, we can't cut off China. We'll hyperinflate our own economy like we're just trying to hyperinflate the Russians almost instantly. The reason why you're seeing things like the Saudis say to us, as they have last week, we're going with the Russians, which means we're going with the Chinese, is because the Chinese are their biggest client. They sell way more oil to the Chinese. They can't make the Chinese unhappy. They have to, do, they have to keep their biggest client happy. When you see absurdities like the U.S. administration flying to Venezuela and to Iran over the weekend, And effectively panhandling for oil from, I mean, they've literally been trying to tip these regimes over for 20 to 40 years. And that I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall of those conversations. Right. But the fact that we had to do that, all of these things are mere symptoms of a dollar system that became a victim of its own success. We're literally, we got dollar Dutch disease. We are the Saudi Arabia of dollars. We'll provide dollars for everybody. And you guys make all the stuff and we'll give you the dollars. And. Like the other side of that deal is you got to keep dollars as good as gold for oil. And if you don't, they've got to go away. And if they go away, well, they got all your factories. Well, you got no options. And so then it just becomes a matter of, again, like you just said, managing the optics of the transition. And I, and I think that's what we're watching and you know, it, 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 it's, it's very interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, systems, I guess systems can't end quietly optically, right? Because, um, that, that just doesn't work. But let's put ourselves in the position of the Russian central bank right now because they are about to provide a lesson and they're in the process of providing a lesson to every other central bank in the world, right? As you said, that big move to sanction the Russian central bank was key. So what the Russians have now is a whole bunch of gold reserves, most of which are sitting in Russia. They have no treasuries. They have their biggest customer, potentially the Chinese, who could one would imagine, simply take all or a huge part of the oil that currently flows through Nord Stream into Europe. Um, but they have other problems, right? They have this problem of being shut out the SWIFT system. Now, CHIPS, the the system between uh, the Russians and the Chinese, the, the kind of alternative to, to SWIFT isn't ready yet, it seems. So what does the Russian central bank do at this point, Luke? And what are the likely ramifications as other central banks around the world watch the situation Russia's in uh, and they try to mitigate being put in the same situation.
1: And I think, you know, the Chinese having their back helps keep them alive, right? But it doesn't, you know, there's logistical issues in terms of, you know, the oil and how much can flow and the gas, et cetera. So- but if I'm the Russian central bank, you know, I'm, and, I, and I wrote about this last week, I used the uh, the metaphor of of the one of my favorite movies, Field of Dreams, right? So there's a great scene in Field of Dreams where Kevin Costner goes to James Earl Jones's character. He's trying to get it with him to come to Fenway to park to see a game and James Earl Jones won't go. So Kevin Costner puts his hand in his pocket and makes a shape like a gun and says, all right, I'm going to kidnap you then. And James Earl Jones sort of casually walks by and grabs a crowbar and starts chasing him down. And. And, 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 Kevin Costner goes, wait, wait, you can't do that. You can't do that. And James Earl Jones says, oh, there's rules here. There's no rules here. You know, so it's, it's a little bit of the same thing where we've, we have a little bit more than a gun in our pocket, but I, going back to my prior point, I think what Russian China did was very, very calculated. The world can't survive without Russia's oil. It can't, uh, you just look at, you know, you run through, it can't. The system will collapse. Now, if we had no debt, we'd probably be okay. We'd have a nasty recession, but we can manage it. But it's the debt. They, they just and and the sovereign debt. If it's just private debt. Companies going bankrupt. Who cares? The the sovereign debt market itself will collapse if they take away Russian energy, and that's critical. So, oh, there's rules here. What do the central? What's you know? What's the crowbar? The Russian central bank can grab for the for the gun in the pocket. And there's a number of different things. You saw a, a hint of it last weekend. Um, Look, if 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 I'm Putin, I mean, you already saw him say, listen, we're going to replace dollars with rubles and contracts. OK, so next step I would do is replace dollars with rubles for oil. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to have the Europeans and the Americans having to sell dollars and, and euros to buy rubles to buy. again. Yeah, you're going to start supporting the ruble for him. Next up is you can use that oil to... um you, you, you could, if you really, and I think this is the nuclear, this is the nuclear weapon uh, is ultimately, we're only accepting gold and we've revalued it. We've revalued the rate. We're, we value gold uh, at I don't know, 500 barrels an ounce, 200 barrels an ounce. It doesn't even have to be at high. I've always used, you know, I've used the number a thousand before. That's hyperbolic. It's easy math, you know, rather than going to 150 barrels, but right, if you go to right. 150 barrels an ounce, right? Uh, all of a sudden the Americans face a choice. Um that throws it back at their lap. Do I, you know, as long as you have not shut all of Russia's oil out of the global market, then it's going to be fungible. You're not going to be able to maintain a value of gold that is 150 barrels or a thousand barrels of oil over here. And, you know, 20 on the, you know, on the, on the, uh, uh, COMEX, NYMEX gold to oil ratio. And what that ultimately does then is, is, when you talk about a move to the, the, the transition to this new system where gold is the neutral reserve asset, out of necessity, national security necessity, remember what I said about the Yom Kippur War and what happened to oil. Oil was made big enough to back the dollar. Oil went up 400%. All of a sudden, the oil market's big enough to serve as effectively a trade settlement, neutral settlement yep. asset. Same thing here. If gold, the, the Russians, at any point in time, tomorrow, the next day, never, have the ability to make gold big enough to f- sort of apply the coup de gras uh, to this ongoing transition that we're already seeing of the primary global reserve asset being treasuries to the primary global reserve asset being gold, simply by weaponizing their oil. Because at the end of the day, the ruble is functionally uh Russia's uh, or nominally Russia's currency but but their currency is really oil and every currency in the world has collapsed against oil over the last two weeks so they, they they have many more options um than are than is appreciated uh once you start thinking in terms of this systemic change that has been clearly underway for 50 years
0: so let, let's talk about options available to other central banks because like I said they're all watching this and uh, to your point America's basically said, Potentially, if we don't like something you do, then we're just going to freeze you out your reserves. We're going to make them worthless. So, you know, every central bank in the world is now looking at this thinking, okay, we need to not be in a position where that can happen to us, because who knows what might happen in the future and, and what might get us deemed a bad actor. So presumably, they are going to be looking to accumulate a lot more gold, because it is, it is, as you said, and as Kane said, a neutral reserve asset. It's nobody's liability. But I think, in addition to that, they're also not going to want to hold it at the Bank of England. They're not going to want to hold it at the New York Fed. You know, there is going to be, one would imagine, um, if common sense, if nothing else prevails, there is going to be a lot more central banks buying gold and a lot more central banks wanting to repatriate it and hold it within their own borders.
1: Agreed. Agreed. So,
0: what does what are, what are, what are those two? things, what effect do they have on not just the global gold market, but this this kind of strange relationship between physical gold and paper gold?
1: Um, the fact that the not just the U.S. effectively said treasuries are no longer good FX reserves uh, two weeks ago, uh, or the U.S. said, what the White House said, but also the fact that they said you have U.S. senators saying we're going to seize your gold, right? You had a small group of U.S. senators, you know, yeah. Not, yeah. As part, part Even, as that, even that that's working. held
0: in Russia, yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Good luck with that. Um, the, you know, I don't think they were senior senators. So, you know, you get some of these crazy, you know, sort of fringe bills laid out there to sort of pander to their audiences. But if we take them at face value, what they were really saying is, is, hey, there's almost 6,000 tons of foreign gold at the New York Fed. You should probably get it before we confiscate it, right? Um, right, but within all of this, I think, as it relates to your question of the paper gold market versus the physical gold market, is um, this is a physical aspect, right? This is this is a all physical, and so I think it's interesting as all of this has happened. Something that I I can't get out of my head is this incredible timing coincidence. Of the net stable funding ratio changes for the gold market per Basel III that had been laid out for years that went into effect January 1, 2022, in the UK, the very center of the unallocated gold market that drives this management of the gold price via the uh, expansion of unallocated gold derivatives, really for the last 30 years. And I I remember reading at the time this net stable funding ratio language, and it's I couldn't figure it out because you have the BIS putting this out. It's you know, Basel's putting this out and you go, this sounds like they want to wind down the paper gold market. This sounds like they're telling London banks, hey, the price of gold's going to go up. Get on sides. Don't be short paper gold. Wind down your unallocated business, your short business. And and get ready to to for the price of gold to go up, and it, it was at the time you kind of go, uh, okay. And now to be clear, it got it got watered down to a certain degree in July, but the gold guys that really know the market that I've talked to say the spirit it got watered down, but the spirit of it in terms of making the pricing of golds to be more physically driven, um, seems to still be there, and so it's really interesting I, I think we're about to see long-winded way of saying i think we're about to see i think the pieces are in place for the physical market dog to start actually wagging you know the tail of that of that market again because it's finally in everybody's interest
0: yeah i mean look it, it, perhaps perhaps just take a couple of minutes just just to explain the nsf for people that that aren't actually completely familiar with what it is
1: Yeah, The the net stable funding ratio, uh, and and this is going to be the very simplified version, Um, Alistair McLeod did a great piece on it in great depth, I want to say in May or June of last year, uh, with gold money, and i point you to that, and he did a follow-up in July when they watered it down. The gist of it is that uh, there are two different capital charges uh, for paper gold versus physical gold, and it's much more... Uh, It's, uh, I won't say prohibitively expensive, but it's notably more expensive, basically, paper versus physical. So it's going to effectively, it effectively incented um, banks to uh, wind down unallocated paper paper, paper gold, basically, to get out of that business um, was, was the gist of it. And so you know in basel for for the audience you know they they're making the banking rules for everybody they say it you got to do it, it it's this sort of not not something you can't go along with so it was this very odd thing to me because that's sort of been the center of how you managed to keep the price of gold from you know rising for as much as it should have right it should have been doing what bitcoin's been doing all along which is you can if there's more demand for gold the price of gold can rise or the amount of paper claims on gold can rise and it's always been the price of gold has risen sort of you know in line with you know debt outstanding et cetera. but it's not been allowed to rise um as, as much as it might have otherwise done given events etc
0: now when you when you when you describe this um you know, we had this this famous thing about Nixon closing the gold window, and you you kind of coined this phrase about the U.S. closing the FX reserves window. And there were a couple of charts in your the piece you put out um, today, which um, I thought spoke volumes. The, the first one was the comparison of the size of annual oil production versus um, annual gold production, because if we are talking about what we're talking about here, where um, Gold might be uh, the gold market might need to be made bigger in order to accommodate this change. Um, so perhaps you could talk about that for a second. And then the other one, which I think is probably the most important one for people to understand, is just the, 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 the debt as a percentage of GDP um, and where we are in that chart. And also the, the CBO, I guess it was, I'm pretty sure it was the CBO projections that you were talking about, but the CBO projections to where that's going to go. And so when you tie those two charts together, the picture that paints is pretty stark.
1: Yeah, so I, I I think when you say okay, let's our view is that the U.S. you know closed the gold window in '71. It's everybody's view. Our view is that the U.S. closed the FX reserves window on February 26, 2022, when they said we can seize these for political reasons. Uh, I think you're going to see a structural, secular. I don't think it's going to be all at once, but I think you're going to see this relentless structural bid, uh, FX reserves bid for gold for physical gold. Uh, uh it'll be physical because it'll be warehoused in those countries because otherwise it could get grabbed um the f- f- fx reserves total are about 12 trillion the all the gold ever mined about 12 trillion so that's going to be very supportive of gold's price over time if this is correct S- then remember all of this goes back this is all in the end it's not about gold it's about oil and about the ability to print your own currency for oil as a matter of national security to prevent your economy Uh, from blowing up when the Americans print all the money they need to uh, for the entitlements. If you look at just the oil market, uh, in uh, annual dollar terms, uh, it's roughly almost 20 times the size of the global gold market in terms of annual production. So new production of gold over Uh, Over new a new production, uh, excuse me, new production of oil over new production of gold is nearly 20x bigger. That doesn't include gas, doesn't include copper, iron ore, corn, etc. Oil's the biggie. To be clear, it's by far the biggest commodity. So the point is, is that you're already you're already talking about an epic short squeeze by driven by uh, FX reserves moving into gold. Uh, It would be even more epic. It's it's piled onto by the commodity markets uh doing doing much the same thing uh and where this all goes is and and where it affects the dollar where it uh, interplays with the debt is if you look back historically uh from two so starting in 71 uh fx reserve balances uh began rising inexorably uh but where they really rose were from call it 2000 uh to 2014 2016 uh, right before and then after China got into the WTO. Um, so FX reserve balances globally uh, were, uh, I think they went from $2 trillion to $12 trillion in the span of uh, 12 years, right? So by far and away, the US's biggest export were treasury bonds. It wasn't even close. US treasury bonds were 2 or 3x the size of, of the US's next biggest export. Right. But the point here is that From 2002 to 2014, 53% of the treasuries the U.S. issued in aggregate of of the amount of debt that U.S. increased in that time. So in aggregate, 53% of the U.S. debt was sterilized by global central banks. In other words, 53 cents of every dollar in debt the U.S. took on from 2002 to 2014 ended up as FX reserves. Uh, So this did two things. Very cheap financing for the U.S. government. And two, it overvalued the dollar and undervalued the yuan and others who were buying these as currency management. So it's basically turbocharging the deindustrialization of the US in favor of China. Uh, When you look from 2014 forward to 2020, what you see is that uh, basically global central banks stopped growing their holdings of FX reserves. They stopped growing their holdings of treasuries. And in that time, you saw two things happen, a period of time where the U.S. regulated U.S. banks into buying more treasuries. Then they regulated U.S. money market funds into buying more treasuries. And then before uh, uh, long, the dollar rose as the U.S. government crowded out uh, global dollar markets. um, uh, And ultimately, this manifested in uh, uh, repo rate spike uh, at the short end of the curve was ultimately a a short-term treasury supply-demand problem, complicated uh, or or made worse by uh, regulatory issues, but it was ultimately a supply-demand problem. Fed begins growing their balance sheet. So what you're talking about here is is if gold becomes the primary reserve asset, displacing treasuries, the US has to either slash spending uh, to reduce treasury issuance, Force the banking system to buy a lot more treasuries. and there's some regulatory things they can do, SLR exemptions that they did after covid, et cetera that basically is more QE through the banking system. Um, or the Fed has to basically re-up QE into an inflation spike to continue to finance these things that defense entitlements, treasury interest, and in treasury spending these these aren't cuttable. So ultimately, Remember that defense report we talked about where they talked about the excess Chinese buying of treasuries, undervalued the yuan, overvalued the dollar, deindustrialized the U.S., made the U.S. defense industrial base weaker vis-a-vis China, and we need to stop this. This reverses that. All of a sudden, closing the FX reserves window, no one's going to buy FX reserves anymore. Even if they just buy less. Forget about not buying them anymore. They buy less. That means the Fed's got to buy more, which means the Fed's going to have to do more deficit financing. Via the printing press, and we know what that did to the dollar, what that did to inflation, because we saw it from 2020 through 2021, and even even forward. So, the bad news is is it's if you hold a lot of bonds, it's 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 a sea change. It's the end of a 40 year bond bull market on a real basis. Um, if you own industrials, it's really good because all of a sudden, this structural dollar system component that was preventing. The reshoring of American manufacturer. they prevented the U.S. from having enough masks in COVID. It's preventing us from being able to be, in, you know, in, industrially sufficient enough to, to to really stick it to China for siding with Russia. That will change over time, uh, and you've seen hints of it already. When you see Ohio getting an Intel fab, and the CEO of Intel saying we're gonna we're gonna make Ohio the biggest, one of the biggest Intel manufacturing regions in the world, like what like ohio was ground zero of of the people who took it in the shorts from 1973 to present under this deal uh, another semi fab in arizona another semi fab in, in 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 texas i i think you're going to i think we're just like it's not even the first inning in this reindustrialization of america but reindustrialization of america was never going to happen until you change this dollar system and remove treasuries as the primary reserve asset replaced it with a neutral one and and here we are. We're two weeks into it. It's, it's incredibly exciting.
0: Yeah, you know, you made an almost throwaway comment there that I think is is a really important one for people to pick up on. And that is this idea that we're just talking about oil, right? But just about every commodity is priced in dollars. And, you know, oil is the most important. It's the lifeblood of the economy. But we're not talking about natural gas and copper and zinc. And you're looking at what's happened to all those commodity prices. They're all showing the effects of the same stresses on the same system, effectively, that we're talking about with gold here.
1: That's right, and you know another way to think about the FX reserves build that's gone from two trillion to twelve trillion. When I say sterilized, sterilized is the right word. What it sterilized was the inflation we otherwise would have seen. Right, they were sterilizing inflation, and so what the US did two weeks ago was basically turn the fire hose on. like all of that stuff that was stored up in the attic, that 12 trillion dollars of liquidity that was sterilized and prevented from causing inflation, it's going to come rushing down into the bedrooms, into the living rooms. And ultimately this is what we need. We need to to rebalance the economy, right? It's, we can't have an economy that can provide for its own self-defense against the Russians and the Chinese. If we're, if we're all bankers, if we're all laundering money for the Russians and the Chinese, like that's not, (laughs) Hey, we're going to seize your yachts is not a a great, what else you got? Um, You know, you've got to be able to make something. And the defense department's been warning about this for a while. This facilitates it. And again, it's for me, it's not, is it good? Is it bad? It's, it's, you know, what's normal for the spider is chaos for the fly. Right. And, and the bond market is the fly. And, you know, the industrials and commodities and gold uh, and, and the U.S. middle and working classes are the spider in this case. And, you know, those roles have been reversed for the last 40 years. You know, it's sucked to be a gold investor. It's sucked to be in the middle class. It's sucked to be a working class guy. It's sucked to be a steel worker in America. And it, it's actually going to change.
0: This isn't the end of something. This is a reversal of something. Right? right. It's not, it's not just we're not at a system that's kind of okay, reached the end of its useful life. We're going back the other way. And in and in many ways, you know, for investors, that although it's going to be an incredibly choppy period the fact that we're going to reverse everything actually gives you a pretty decent framework for what's likely going to happen here, right? It's not a time to be owning bonds. You've had a great time owning bonds for the last 40 years. You've been able to own them with your eyes shut and and just kind of grit your teeth when you've had a few periods of bumpiness. That's not going to be the same. It's going to be a terrible time to own bonds. It's been an awful time. Well, not an awful time, but it's been a poor time to own commodities. Um, it's not been a great time to own gold, given what's happened. But those trends are likely to reverse. Asset prices, uh, which have been inflated on the back of QE, are going to have to fall. You know all these things that have happened have been the bedrock of the of the kind of um, veneer of prosperity that's been laid across this this system, are going to reverse, not just end but reverse.
1: I, I think that's right, right, and, it's, and and you might actually see U.S. indices rise, but underneath that, I think it's going to be this vicious sector rotation of. You know, industrial commodities, infrastructure, uh, and and I think there'll be roles for for even some of the, the 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 growth tech names or the you know sort of the the Microsofts and the you know the the Googles of the world that are sort of tech infrastructure. Um, you know, so it's it's. I think on net, you probably end up with indices up, but underneath that, it's going to be this vicious sector rotation
0: from the fly to the spider. You're right.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Exactly right. Well, listen, look, this has been such a such a fantastic conversation as as they always are. Whatever I talk to you, and, and I, look for people out there that's listening who are familiar with you and have been kind of sitting around on the fence, wondering about whether they should subscribe to your work and stuff. You know, I I can't stress strongly enough that that now is the time. In my book, if you want to understand what's going on, and if you want to understand what we're about to go into. I think Luke, your work is just about the finest of its type that's out there, and has been has been following this dynamic for such a long time now. And I would encourage everybody to to at least give it a try, to contact you and and find out more about your work, and maybe get some samples to really understand what it is you're talking about. Because to me, it's been invaluable in building my own framework over the last you know nearly a decade. And I just feel like it you are about to come into your own in, in regards to what's going forward. So, so let people out there, give them a really comprehensive way of how they can get in touch with you and kind of sample some of your work and find out what you're doing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. The, the easiest ways to get in touch with us. You can check us out on, on the, uh, at our website, fftt-llc.com. That includes what we're up to, as well as different product offerings, uh, both institutional and mass market. Uh, you can also uh, check us out on Twitter. I've got a, a very active Twitter feed at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. Uh, you reach out there, and uh, it's uh, it's it's fun. I, I I'm I, I I don't work a day in my life because uh, this is just it, 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 it's fun. It's a passion. It's interesting. It's stimulating. Uh, and uh, you know, and I get to talk to you and 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 you know uh, talk about this interesting stuff for an hour and a half on a, on a Wednesday. I, I love it.
0: Well, mate, listen, again, thank you for making the time to do this at short notice. I, I really appreciate it. I've messed you around a bit this week, scheduling-wise, but uh, but I'm so glad we found time to do this, Luke. Thanks so much. Um, say hi to Tracy and the boys for me, and uh, hopefully I'll see you in person soon.
1: Absolutely. Thanks again for having me on. It was great catching up.
0: Take care, mate. There's really not much for me to add to all that, except uh, to echo what I just said. You know, for any of you who've been circling Luke's work, now, I've got to say, would be an exceptionally smart time to, at the very least, sample his writing and get a deeper understanding of the picture he's painted so brilliantly over this last decade. I say that with zero skin in the game myself, should you choose to do so. Visit Luke's website at fftt-llc.com and inquire about his work. I've long considered it essential reading as I've said, and I strongly suspect it's about to come into its own with what happens next. You can also, as Luke pointed out, follow him on Twitter. You'll find him at Luke Groman. That's one M and that's something everybody can and absolutely should do. That's it for me. I'll be back again very soon with another great returning guest who finds himself also squarely in the spotlight once more. But until then, every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The Endgame, The Super Happy Hour, The Narrative Game, and the brand new series This Week in Doom, is available to Copper and Silver Tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper Tier subscribers get access to all podcasts, while members of the Silver Tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go, Hmm. So, If you enjoy what you hear on the show and you want more high quality content like it, please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. My thanks to you for listening.